0: Hi, and welcome to the Church Unlimited podcast. Church Unlimited is a vibrant Bible-based church in North Lakes, Queensland, that is passionate about helping people discover the genuine love of Jesus. If you're currently looking for a home church, we would love for you to join us for Sunday worship. For more information about our Sunday service, or to find out how we can best help you, head to our website at churchunlimited.com.au. We hope you enjoy this message from Sunday service. Uh, Today I get to teach you about Sola Scriptura. Now, I have been told that my preaching style is a little bit like Aldi. It's good, but it's different. So we're going to see how we go today. Um, But we're going to crack open this Bible and actually see, yeah, why do we trust this? Okay. Beresit Hares. Wrong language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know, those six words in the Hebrew, once they had been written, once somebody had read that, the world has never been the same since. When Moses picked up his pen or his quill from that paper and those words had been read, from that point on, the world would be forever changed. And you know what? We live in the same world and we still have the same word. Today, pastors James and Paula, they've given me the honor of teaching sola sola scriptura, scripture alone. And I get to explore, what does that mean? Why is it so central? Today, I want to tip my hand and argue that our lives today should be as radically changed now as the Israelites' lives were changed by then. You see, when those words were written, The Egyptians weren't living in the the world that we live in today. They weren't living in a free world, even. They had been slaves for 400 years. They had been living in a culture that was anti-grace, anti-forgiveness. Many gods that you worshipped, but they were all cruel and evil gods. They were, you know, pro-slavery. Perhaps they were like the world today because they were actually pro-killing kids for political or economic power. That's a bit controversial off the bat, isn't it? They had been slaves in this culture for 400 years. It had been ingrained in them for 10 generations. And against this, God would inspire Moses to write, not about warring gods or slaving gods or cruelty, but about a God who created the universe with the words, just just his words, and a God who wanted to walk in the cool of the garden with Adam and Eve and every single one of us. God's word was not meant to blend in with culture or be one voice amongst many in the culture. It would define and reshape the way that everybody lived who heard it. And then, like Pastor Dan introduced us last week from the foundations of this series, do you know what? The same needed to happen in Luther's time. Scripture alone, so that those wanting to follow God would take their authority and shape it not from the beliefs surrounding them, not from the monarchy they lived in, not even from the church that they were part of. In fact, some parts of the church in those days actively made sure that people couldn't read this. You know, medieval England, they're all speaking, well, King James Bible language, but they're all speaking that, but the Bible had been kept in Latin so that the modern person, common person couldn't read it, so that they couldn't use this as their sole authority. But Luther would make sure that people had access to this book and our world was changed. Protestantism was born in that time. And it wasn't by adding things to Scripture. It wasn't by adding things to what God called us to. It was about getting rid of all of those other authorities that competed and putting and making sure everything was subservient to what God's word was in this book. Now, the same occurred in... The same occurred in paul's time when he was writing galatians and romans they were fighting it and going oh the jewish culture is better no the roman's culture is better no we need to obey these rules we need to obey these rules and he said no 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 there is no longer jew nor greek there's no longer slave nor free there's no longer male nor female for all of you are one in christ jesus and that was the message that is proclaimed in this book and that's what he said needs to shape you there was there was war inside the churches saying oh you know we need to follow these rules or we need to follow these it's like no this is a new kingdom and you will learn about it and paul would write most of the new testament most, at least counting by books and now two thousand years later we find ourselves in the same world i often speak to my ula students do you know what's changed in the world in 2000 years nothing except the technology we live in exactly the same world. We live in a world where social media, cancel culture, and a plethora of teachers online will teach you anything that your itching ears want to hear. 2 Timothy 4. We live in a world that wants to make truth relative, but this book was never meant to be relative, nor was it meant to be, you know, just one voice in many, but to speak authority, sola scriptura. So today, I actually want to look at some questions that we might not normally ask. I know there's actually a whole lot of new Christians in the building. You know, over the, we have grown so much over the last three years. So many people here, you know, you haven't been Christians for one year, two years, three years. Perhaps you weren't born into a Christian life. So, for some people, you might be asking, why do we even trust this book? You know, has anybody ever thought, why do you actually read the Bible and why do you trust the Bible? Anybody, want, anybody game enough to venture? Why, why do you read the Bible? Brings life. Brings life? Okay. So it works? Yeah? That, when I ask that, I ask that every year in my ULA students. Um, and the four most common reasons. You know, the first, most common reason people read the Bible? It's like, I grew up with it. Yeah, okay. you know, that's a very common answer. And for a lot of us that grew up in a Christian household, that's actually, you know, probably why we do read it but I also grew up with the Encyclopedia Britannica. I grew up with Wikipedia. <laughs> heck, heck, I grew up with Lord of the Rings, but I don't build my life around the, those writings. Just because I grew up with a book doesn't mean it's worth reading. Okay? The next one is, well, it's expected at church. You know, a lot of us read the Bible. It, it kind of came as a package deal. You know, I got Jesus, I got the church, and I got the Bible, and I just kind of, they, they all go together, like that's our modern, modern trinity. Now, a lot, a lot of people read the Bible because it's just expected at church. Now, I'm a pastor, and yes, I do expect you to read your Bible, um, but that's because of the effect that it brings, okay? But if I had to be brutally honest, is peer pressure a good reason to read the Bible? No. Oh, I'm actually seeing some really uncomfortable people in their seats right now. Don't worry, I'll bring this home. Um, many of us, like Ron, like it works. It just brings life. It's been working for 2,000 years. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and let's continue to trust it. But does that make the Bible any better than a TED talk? Perhaps not. What about, oh, God says, God says it's the Bible. God says it's trustworthy. Yeah, but where does God say that? In the Bible. <laughs> That's the very definition of a cyclic argument. We can't trust... Because you know what? The Muslims say that the Quran says the same thing. The J-Dubs and the Mormons have their own corrupted version of this book. Do we trust that when it says that they're God? No, we don't. And if you're speaking, if you're reaching out to your friends and you've got atheistic or agnostic friends and they say, oh, the Bible's not trustworthy, why do you trust the Bible? You can't just say, oh, God says. You know, 2 Peter, or 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that you have. So you'd better have a good reason for trusting this book. Yeah. Now, as I said, I'm not going to leave you hanging. God has actually given us so much evidence of His Word, so we can be sure. Now, I can't go through all of the reasons. That's why we have ULA. Yeah. Now, if you want all of the reasons, come study under me for 28 weeks okay and you will actually get to figure out you know this is why we trust the bible and we actually go through every single book in here but i can't do 28 weeks but i'm just going to do three points okay as to why we trust the bible and this is especially useful if you're reaching out to your non-christian friends and they challenge you on this yeah this is some really great ways that you can know hey we can be assured of what god says in this book firstly we can trust the bible because of the textual evidence measured by worldly standards, not just Christian standards. If you were to go to any ancient historian and you say, "You know, how do we trust an old book? And they'll they'll give you three measures. They'll say, well, it's the number of copies because before the printing press and before email, it actually took effort to make a copy. So something that was actually being copied again and again and again, it was important. Secondly, we say, well, how accurate were the copies? If somebody was just scrolling something down and making a lot of mistakes, not very important. If somebody was being very careful to make sure every single dot, every single letter was exactly the same, you, know, you can tell that they revered that document. And then thirdly, we measure how long was it between when the events happened and when we have the copy. Like, was it a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy, or do we actually have the original document? So they're the three measures that the world will actually say this is how we check whether a document's right. And on this score alone, I think God just ran up the score because he could. Okay? And this is what I mean. If, you, if we were to look at the life of, say, Caesar, one of the key documents that we have of his life lived within about 30 years of Jesus. So this is very similar. We have 10 copies of a particular document of his life. And it was written a thou- The copies that we have, though, are from a thousand years after he actually lived. So that's a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Um Aristotle, we have f- most famous of all the Grecian philosophers. We have forty-nine copies of what he wrote, and that was fourteen hundred years later. Copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy copy. Second most popular writing from ancient history. Um, who here likes a good movie? You know, Brad Pitt movie, the movie Troy. Okay, Yeah. <laughs> not not bad. I prefer the Marvel movies, but it's not a bad movie. That was based on an ancient, you know document called Homer or Homer's Iliad, you know, 650 copies, and you go, whoa, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. okay. And it was only written, the copies that we have were only 500 years after. Or oh, it's getting trustworthy. But then we look at the Bible, and I'm going to tie one hand behind my back just to, you know, make sure that I'm not cheating here, because I might be a bit biased. Let's just look at the New Testament. 5,600 partial <laughs> copies or copy parts of, and that's not even including when you had a preacher like starting to record and copy things into their notes. Not 500 years, not 1,000 years after, we have records from the very first century. They worked to actually preserve those documents so well. And if you were to measure the accuracy of those, scholars actually say it's more than 99.7% accurate across 5,600 documents. Okay, you want the rest of that, come to ULA. Yeah. But... I'm going to keep plugging it all day, because I am so passionate about getting God's Word into you. You can tell God just ran up the score. Anytime somebody says, oh, we can't trust the Bible because it's a copy of a copy of a copy, no, it is not. And even secular historians will actually have to agree, no, we're pretty much working with the originals at this point. Okay? Secondly, now let's look at what's inside the Bible. The Bible writers inform us of things that there is no way that they could have known right from genesis 3 where we have this genesis 1 3 where we have the first hint of a messiah arriving in the line of david you know we go through to maybe the prophet isaiah so 700 years before jesus and he writes of a messiah arriving in the line of david born to a virgin i think that narrows it down pretty well um after a time that many innocents were slaughtered to a nation that had displaced babylon that is the prophecy of isaiah 40 through 53 Now, this was written not only 700 years before Jesus, so how the heck could Isaiah have known that, but it was actually written 200 years before Babylon would conquer Jerusalem, only for Rome to then conquer them. Like, there is no way he could have known that. Um, American author, the late Tim LaHaye, identified over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament and Jesus got every single one of them, okay? The Bible was either authored by somebody who knew the future or, and this is what we believe, it was written by a God who exists outside of time, who knew exactly what was going on the whole time through. And now, let's look at what Jesus thought of Scripture. If that weren't enough, have you ever thought about what did Jesus grow up reading? Sorry? What did did he grow up reading? Jesus grew up reading the Old Testament jesus the old testament was jesus's bible okay and when jesus was trying to convince his disciples you know this is after his death and resurrection and they're all huddled in this upstairs room that they're, they're hiding it's like oh, i don't know what we do now our messiah's been killed okay and they're all freaking out and jesus just appears amongst them i don't know whether he just kind of teleported in a la star trek or whether he walked through a closed door um, i don't know but either way i think it was a pretty impressive entrance and he's trying to convince them. He's like, hey, I am, I'm, I'm God and I'm back. You know, death didn't stick. I, I loved the worship bracket this morning because death was mocked. You know, oh, death, where is your sting? I love that. If you read the New Testament and you do not come away thinking death is mocked, you're not reading it correctly. But that's another sermon for another day. Um, but Jesus rocks up and he doesn't say, hey, guys, I was born of a virgin. He doesn't say, hey, guys, I just walked through that wall. He doesn't even say, hey guys, I just rose from the dead, go check out the tomb. What does he say? He says this, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms, which is how the Jews refer to the Old Testament. You know, Jesus' words and actions were that even his authority would be measured against Scripture. And his Everywhere Jesus argued with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he's quoted and defined from this book. And guess what? We are called to be like him. So do you know what that means? That means we take our authority from this book, from only this book. So now I hope I've shown that we can trust this. But what do we do with that? What does sola scriptura mean in practice? Now... So I don't jump into yet another language, I'm going to avoid Latin and Greek, I'm not going to argue this from Luther's point of view, but I want to tell you part of my story and how Sola Scriptura has shaped who I am. So, at, this, at a defining moment of my faith, this was back in 2001, and this was the point where I believe God called me into ministry. I was visiting churches across America, you know, Carly, my girlfriend at the time, now my beautiful and stunning wife, she gets two adjectives. Uh, LAUGHTER <laughs> she decided to go to Japan for 10 months so I decided I can go to America for two weeks and I was visiting a whole lot of churches across there um, one born out of the American revivals in the 70s and 80s another one in Chicago in Skid Row LA another one in, in Skid Row LA and a whole bunch of smaller churches in between and there I heard this preacher he was speaking out of the Old Testament but then he quoted from 2 Timothy 3.17, and it was so obvious that he took this serious. He said, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for training, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be built up for every good work. You see, while I was in America for those two weeks, I saw entire communities that had been transformed because against the backdrop of Skid Row in LA, they refused to accept that culture. They refused to accept, hey, this is how it's meant to be. This is the norm. What did they do instead? They looked at James 1.27. Religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think if you're living in LA, either then or right now, that's a pretty big challenge. But they took it so seriously that they completely transformed that community. And a report that came out in 2010 by the LA police said that crime had dropped 70% within 10 blocks of that church. Because they took it serious and said, you know what? We don't accept the world's culture. We accept God's authority. Okay. Then there was another church in Chicago, Michigan. And this is the seat of industrial power back then, but also the corruption that goes with it, yep. And I saw a church devoted to raising up godly leaders who would not be corrupted. Some of these leaders would walk away from seven-figure incomes to come and donate their time to growing the church, others stayed in their workplaces, in their businesses, in the politics to continue to influence culture or to, for some of them, make ridiculous amounts of money and then tithe that back in and they thought that was their ministry. And if anybody here wants to do that, go for it. Okay, but they would transform major parts of Michigan to the point where some, political, some politicians didn't even bother running because they knew that the church actually had the absolute majority, like more than 50% of the voting members of the suburbs actually went to that church. You know, I'm not saying that that should be our approach, but I saw them taking the Bible so seriously that they would take up their cross and follow Jesus potentially leaving everything to do it, be it personal lives, money, career, family, politics, I saw people devoted to making sure that every page of their life aligned with every page of this. And so this is the great story, but whilst this was going on, something else much darker was going on and it put me in a spot where I had to wrestle. You see, I was, I was grow, I'd grown up in a denomination and I was actually on the path to become a pastor in that denomination. And at the same time I was seeing these great effects of what happens when a community believes the Bible, I also saw the leadership of the denomination that I was in effectively declare that eh, some parts of the Bible aren't really worth following. Some parts don't need to be followed. The Bible only contains the Word of God. It's not 100% the Word of God. And so we'll put our own parts in there. But what does 2 Timothy 3.17 say? All scripture is God-breathed. And so in 2001, I was actually given a choice. And I believe God spoke through one of the leaders in one of those sermons, and I still have that sermon on my hard drive today because it still reminds me. He put it this way, and I teach my ULA students this every time. 95% devotion to God's word is what? Five, okay, somebody passed the test. Five percent short. That's a bonus mark on your test. Um. 95% devotion to God's Word is 5% short. And it's not because we want to squeeze a little bit more blood out, you know, get that last 10 minutes or that last $10 out of you. That's not it at all. The problem is when you believe that the Bible is only 95% authoritative in your life, you are the one that gets to choose the 5%. You're the one that gets to decide, no... I'm going to believe culture instead of believing God's Word for this and this. I think culture got it more right than God did on this 5%. And we can say, oh, I follow 95% of the Bible. But how is that going to go, oh, sorry, police officer, I follow 95% of the speeding laws. (laughs) Sorry, Mr. ATO person, since it's July the 3rd right now. I followed 92% of the tax laws. That doesn't bring change. It was put to me this way, um, and this is how I've believed it. We'll go to the next slide there, Kaz. It is the fully inspired, authoritative Word of God, not just parts of it. Guess, Guess what? That means the bits I agree with in the Bible and the bits that I don't. I have to listen to the bits that build me up and edify me and make me stronger, and I have to listen to the bits in the Bible that say, hey, Brad, you need to cut that out of your life. You need to tear that down. That has no place in your life. Okay? The parts that agree with the culture of this world, because, hey, we actually live in a Judeo-Christian world, or at least the remnants of one, and a lot of our culture actually agrees with the Bible, but we also have to believe in the parts that will get us cancelled and the bits that aren't going to make us popular in today's world. Okay? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but from a human perspective, Jesus got killed because he offended too many people and he wouldn't play into their kingdoms, wouldn't play into their culture in fact, in one spot, the disciples come to him and they say, don't you know the Pharisees are offended when they hear you speak? And Jesus replies, they'll leave them. You know? <laughs> They're blind guides. And a couple of sentences earlier, he'd said, their teachings are merely human rules. Because Jesus knew that the rules of the society he lived in, they might be gone in 10 years, they might be gone in 100 years, they might be gone in 1,000 years. But what do we know about the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and it is still here today, and it will still be here for all eternity. The Bible is meant to change us and our world, but it can only do so when we fully embrace it and don't try to splice it together with other things that have the same amount of authority in our life. This means that if there is something that disagrees with Scripture, it loses, okay? God's Word wins. I get to choose between culture and the Bible, who wins? Bible. Yeah. yeah, yes, no, Bible, Jesus, coffee, they're the Sunday school answers and they still work today. Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. what if it's my political party or the Bible? Bible. Oh, now again, these uncomfortable seats are coming back. What if it's that boyfriend or girlfriend I'm trying to score or the Bible? Ooh really uncomfortable. We've got some young adults in in the church. Okay. Um, Brad Austin's Christian Dating 101. You run as hard and fast as you possibly can towards this book and towards Jesus, and then you look around and see who's keeping up. That's how you Christian date, right there. Okay. And you know why I say that? Because my daughter's sitting in the audience. (laughs) Okay. Here's one. If what I preach... Or what Pastor Dan preaches? Or what pastors Hensley preach? Disagrees with the Bible? Bible. Okay? Now, we believe Ephesians 4, God has actually raised up preachers and teachers and God gives us insight into His Word. But any preacher, and you can just go on YouTube and find them left, right and center, you know, we should be able to defend what we teach based on the Word that comes out of God's Word. Okay? Don't just take our word for it, you know, take our sermon, take our message and then go back and see, hey, does this agree with Scripture? Okay. Okay. And if you are struggling to understand things, ask your small group leader, ask your pastors, ask your teachers, ask others that you trust, come do ULA or ask one of their students. Because you know what? I'm not just the only teacher now. Half of our students, like they're in key positions. Go and ask them, hey, what does the Bible say? And actually explore. This is why I cold-opened in Hebrew with Genesis 1, because right from Genesis 1, God's Word was to stand apart and be jarring and actually say, hey, this is different. This is something that we actually need to shape our lives. You know, you think about what did they have the choice between? They could have said, like the Egyptian, was, the Egyptian way of thinking was, there's many gods and they're at war. Or there's one God that actually loves you and wants to walk in the cool of the evening, There's many gods over here, and there's no difference between creation and creator. That's why they had Ra, the sun god. It was person and Ra and sun at the same time. Or there is a distinct difference between creation and creator. And sin can actually be defined as the worship of creation rather than the creator. Okay? The Egyptian way said you can be your own god. Again, a message that still is proclaimed today. Or, no, there is one creator. The Egyptian way, hate your enemy, you were created by many gods to war. Or the God's way, love your brother and your enemy. This is not something that we would, like, it doesn't make any sense from a worldly point of view, but we can see how it's changed the world. When I look through all of my favourite characters in Scripture, Again and again, they were presented with this idea of, do I follow scripture or do I follow God's word and what he's speaking to me through the prophets? Because you know what? The people in the Old Testament didn't have the Old Testament to read. Um, but i just looking for some of the characters. I think of Abram. Do you know what? I, like, Abram, this is Genesis 14, he picked a fight with four kings and he only had 413 soldiers. Manages to win, rescues his, rescues his nephew Lot. And then he has a choice he can either align with five other kings because you know what i think there's going to be some revenge and payback coming he can either align with five other kings including the kings of sodom and gomorrah or he can tithe and give one tenth back to the priest melchizedek who was speaking on behalf of god from a worldly perspective it made no sense what he did but we're still speaking about abram and we know what happened to sodom and gomorrah okay The entire story of Esther, um, any of the young women, and if we have young young females in the room, Esther, she's an amazing role model. Um, This was a queen who could enjoy being married to the wealthiest person on the planet, or she could risk her life to save her people. And what does God say through Mordecai? Who knows, Esther, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. In the Old Testament, over its entirety, there was actually a time where there was 19 kings in the northern kingdom and 19 kings in the southern, and every single one in the northern kingdom was evil, the Bible tells us. But eight out of the 19 in the south, they, they continually tried to turn the nation back to God. And this nation in the south, it was one-sixth the size and geographically it was very easy to conquer and yet that southern kingdom lasted 150-something extra years as God protected it and it is through that kingdom that Jesus was born because they kept turning back to God's word. And then Paul in Galatians and Romans, the message was basically the same. That Roman way isn't going to save you. Following all those Jewish rules isn't going to save you. And Paul was basically saying, and by the way, I'm the best Roman and the best Jew you're going to know and it's not going to save me. (laughs) And if I don't make the cut, guess what? (laughs) But then he would proclaim in Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is the gospel. That is the good news that he was in the middle of writing and now we get to read. So how do we now allow the Bible to affect us? Tim Keller once said, The gospel has been described as a pool in which a toddler could wade and an elephant could drown. (laughs) It is both simple enough to tell a child and profound enough for the greatest minds to explore. God has not given us a book that is so difficult that only skilled readers can understand. Many people look at this book and think, it's too thick, it's too complicated, it's too big, I'll never understand But yet the more that you delve into this, you know, Scripture explains Scripture. The more you delve in and study, the more God reveals. And passages that may not have made any sense or not add to your understanding can years later come back as you have more and more of God's Word in you. You start to understand more of His plans and more of what He's planning on doing. My best advice is to figure out, read as much of it as you can, but make sure it's consistent. Don't just read like, a whole book and then put it on the shelf for six months and then come back and think that's going to change you. You know, be consistent with it. Make sure you're taking in scripture every week or every day, and then this was a big challenge for me. Don't allow what you don't understand to stop you from actioning what you do. Yeah. So many of us go, oh, I can't understand the whole Bible, I'm not gonna do any of it. It's like no. Start working out the bits that you do understand, and God will bring revelation. And it's big enough and thick enough that there's a lot of advice that you can follow before you get to the bits that you don't. Okay. (sighs) To put this into some kind of context and for how to view this, you may have noticed that, you know, the team put up these trees on the sides of stage. Okay. (laughs) Ron knows where this is going. Um, How do we view Scripture? What direction is Scripture moving us in? If I ever teach you something and you do not go away changed, I haven't taught you. I've just dumped a whole bunch of words. The same is true of Scripture. If you read this and you don't go away changed, you haven't learned. You've just read. But here, the Bible, the best thing is, think of it like a collection of stories about God's kingdom. We use the analogy in ULA of between the trees. If you think right back to Genesis 3, what's in the garden? It's the tree of life. Now, before that, before the first sin, everything was perfect. Can we agree on that? Yeah, everything was perfect before that tree. And then right at the end, in the second last chapter of Revelation, there's another tree called the tree of life. And everything after that, we are told there is no more weeping or gnashing of teeth. Everything again is how God designed it to be. The Bible is the story that happens between the trees. And everything that gets ruined everything if it was perfect before we started and it's perfect at the end then that means God is going to redeem everything that went wrong from the first tree to the last anything that is corrupt anything that stands against his kingdom is going to be removed because at the end we know there is only one kingdom left standing and it is God's perfect kingdom and we call that eternity or heaven when you read the Bible, you have to look for how is God changing culture? How is God bringing his kingdom back? How is he redeeming the world? This is why the very first words that came out of God's mouth after the first sin was the promise of a Messiah, because God knew that this sin now has to be dealt with, and that was Jesus on the cross. And right, and you know what? Death has actually been defeated, and that's why I say death is death should be mocked, because it has no power anymore. It's like you know, you, know, the, you know where we live in in history right now? Think back to World War II after D-Day. On D-Day in World War II, Germany was defeated, but there were still pockets of resistance until the Allies would eventually destroy once and for all the evil of narcissism. We live in that in the New Testament time. We live in that now. Death has been defeated on the cross. Yeah, you know, the Bible actually says, Oh, death, <laughs> where is your sting? I love that if you've ever been stung by a bee i don't like that but you know how many stings a bee has one and it dies once once a bee has stung you it's got nothing left and jesus was like hey death guess what you killed me and it didn't stick and if it didn't stick for me it's not going to stick for anybody else who follows me and comes and follows me and he invites us into that eternal life this is how you read the bible you look at how god is redeeming and restoring Your world, okay? If you have trouble exploring Scripture, you know, think about, well, how is God bringing restoration? But now some real practical way to take the Scripture in. You know, there's a method that we use and it's called SOAP. You know, Scripture, observe, apply, pray. Now, if you've got teenage boys in your house and it's hard enough to get them to use SOAP anyway, you can use reap which is read, explore, apply, and pray. It's exactly the same thing, I just know we're talking to two different audiences. (laughs) But whichever one you want to go with, I'll go with soap, because that's what's generally taught. This is how we can make sure we start taking in Scripture. Every day, just read one chapter. That's about the size of a newspaper article. If you can read something on Facebook, you can take five minutes to read something from God. Be on the lookout for a verse or sentence that jumps out at you. If you journal, if you keep a diary, write it down with the Bible reference next to it. Because you can actually come back and see how God has spoken to you throughout your years. If you're in somewhere where you can, read it out aloud, because that actually helps you remember it even more. You're using more of your, more of your senses. Okay? After you've done this, you then observe or explore the passage. Ask yourself, hey, what jumped out? Why did God decide to record that? What would the original hearer have heard when they first read this? Are we looking at something that was countercultural to the day? Was the Bible writer asking them to do something that made no sense in the culture that they were in? Okay. One of the key tools to understand the Bible is to look and see how the first person to read this would have read it. That's the key way to understand. We call that exegesis. And this is a really great safeguard. God often speaks multiple ways through his word. Oftentimes there's second or third meanings that you can look at when they apply to Jesus or when they apply to him coming back. But those second and third meanings will never contradict what was first intended. So we always look back and say, hey, what was that The core? And again, if you're confused, find a pastor, your grow group leader, someone that you can talk to about this. Okay? After this, apply it. What did I say earlier? Don't allow what you don't understand to stop you doing what you do. Okay? You have to apply this. You actually have to put it into practice. Is God challenging you to start doing something? To stop doing something? To change an approach or an ideology? To go and talk to somebody? In some cases, perhaps move away from something or somebody that is toxic or that is drawing you away from God. What is God challenging you to do through that passage. Is God speaking comfort to you in a time of loss or grief? Or is God speaking challenge to you? Ask, how can you apply this? And then pray. Speak to God about what you've just read. Ask him for clarification. Pray out loud, or even better, write it down. Do you know why I'm so keen on having people either pray out loud or write it down? because it slows us down. You can think up to 600 times faster than you can speak, and even more so than you can write. If you sit and actually speak a prayer out loud or write it down, you're actually forcing your brain to not move at 100%, and you actually create space and room for God to speak to you. So it's just a simple discipline to speak your prayers out loud as you explore God's word. But it forces you to create room for him to speak. You know, I love this approach. One of the words that we use to describe how God created his word is this word, feros. And it's meant to explore how God guided the original writers. But in Latin, the word feros, we use the same word for ferric iron or magnetic iron. It's like a magnet. If you can imagine God's Holy Spirit like a magnet drawing you along, then putting in more and more and more of God's Word is like filling yourself with iron filings. The more that you have in you, the more that that magnet has to latch onto and guide and draw you into God's kingdom and God's plan for your life. This isn't magic. It's not anything else. It's just if I've got God's Word in me, then God's Spirit's got more to latch onto in my life and draw me along in His will. So before we leave today, I'll just invite the worship team to come back up. Before we leave today, speaking of authority, I have to obey the greatest instruction in Scripture. The more I read of it, the more that this is central. Jesus' great commission, in Greek, the first thing and the last thing you say are the most important, and the last thing that Jesus said was this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples, which is what we do, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where are you, Ellie? Woo! Thank you for letting us do that today. We baptize you in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This book reveals to us a God who made the heavens and the earth but also desires to walk with every single one of you. A God who stepped out of heaven and lived and died for us. This is God Emmanuel. And this is a God who warned us of the destructive nature of sin and rebellion in our life. But this word also reveals to us that he died to take our punishment and eternal suffering so that we could be with him and his kingdom and his community. Thanks for joining us. We pray that you and your family are richly blessed by the love and grace of Jesus. If you're ever in the area, we would love for you to join us for Sunday worship.